talking about, but um, as, we, as we come together, let's, um, let's just pray for a moment and commit the next 20 minutes or so uh, into God's hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us. Thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you that as we uh, read its pages, we hear your voice and meet your son. We pray that we'd do that this morning. Please would you uh, bring him alive to us in our, in our hearts uh, and our minds. Uh, please magnify and glorify him this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. What does, what does good news mean to me? How does it uh, inspire me to tell other people? Let me, let me start here uh, with this. Um, I, a little bit earlier this year, I read a, a novel. I, I'm, I, quite, I quite like reading fiction, um, read a lot of novels, and uh, I read a book called All the Light You Cannot See. I don't know if you've come across it. It's, um, I think it was on a Booker Prize list a couple of years ago, and it's, um, it's a really moving story set uh, in the French town of Saint-Malo during the Second World War. The story's about two characters. One of them is a blind teenage French girl. She's been brought up by her father to be able to kind of make sense of the world and um, kind of deal with her blindness. And the other is a German boy who, largely through no fault of his own, has been kind of drawn up into the Hitler Youth and then into the army and ends up fighting um, in, uh, in, in the Second World War. Their stories, in all sorts of really interesting ways, are intertwined. So through the, through the novel, you, kind of, you get to see them apart, and gradually, as the novel goes on, they kind of move closer and closer together until uh, eventually, right at the end of the novel, they meet one another for the first time. Uh, I won't tell you what happens when they meet. I think you should go and buy the book and read it. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really good. What's really interesting and striking is that when they meet each other for the first time, their expectations of who the other person is are kind of enlarged. They realise that the person standing in front of them is much more than they expected or had expected to find. They realise that there's so much more to the other person than what they had thought or what they had expected as the novel had gone on. If there's one thing that I want you to take away from this morning, it's this. Jesus Christ is much more compelling and much more surprising than you think he is. Jesus Christ is much more compelling. He's much more surprising. He's much better than you think he is. And that's true uh, whether you would call yourself a Christian this morning or whether you are here as someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here this morning and, and really deep down you're not quite sure what you really think of the whole Christianity thing. Maybe you've got lots of questions and you're just kind of trying to make a bit of sense of them and figure things out as you go. And if that is you, can I just say you're really welcome to be here with us. This is the right place to be as you work through those questions. But can I assure you that Jesus Christ is much more wonderful than you think he is, much more compelling, much more surprising. Perhaps, though, you'll hear of someone who's been a Christian for a long time, your whole life, as long as you can remember. Perhaps you're here in church every Sunday and twice on a Sunday and as many times as you can be in the week as well. Can I assure you, too, if that's who you are, that Jesus Christ is much more compelling than you think he is. He's much more surprising. He's much better than you think. What, how so? Why do, why, do, why do I say that? Let's think um, briefly about that story we had read um, from Mark 
chapter 10. And if you've still got your Bible, it's page 1014, Mark chapter 10, and that's the story that we're reading. Jesus meeting the rich young ruler. Now, the rich young ruler, if he were, um, if he were alive today, uh, you would be really, really impressed by him. He's the kind of guy who has got all of the right credentials. He's really, really impressive. So uh, undoubtedly, he would have gone to the right school and uh, to a top university somewhere. Uh, He would be working in a good job. He would be on a really prestigious career path, maybe earning quite a bit of cash. Uh, And you can almost imagine, as he comes up to Jesus and his disciples, the disciples looking him up and down and feeling a bit worried because he looks really impressive and he might well outshine them if he joins their merry band. He's that kind of person. And his words to Jesus sound really encouraging. What he says, first of all, it's in verse 17. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's kind of saying, look, I'm ready. Sign me up. Let's go. Here I am. I'm available. Which makes Jesus' response to him really surprising, doesn't it? Because Jesus doesn't say, great, you're in. Let's get started on you. Jesus gives him what sounds like an impossible set of commands. He says, do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness or defraud, honour your father and mother. Jesus is picking up on the Ten Commandments and saying, look, this is it, this is what you've got to do if you're going to be part of my kingdom. But this guy has has got real perseverance, hasn't he? Yes, he says, great. I've done all of that. I've ticked every box. What else can I do? And by the way, I I don't think he's lying there or kind of kidding Jesus, trying to pull the wool over his eyes. I think he really thinks that he has got it all sorted. He's done everything that you should do. What else can I do? And Jesus says, go, sell everything you have and give your money to the poor. It's really interesting, isn't it? Why does Jesus keep almost pushing him away, keep him at arm's length a little bit? Why doesn't Jesus just say, great, you've done it, you've ticked every box, you've kept every command? And to confuse matters further, this little conversation starts the disciples worrying as well. They they say to Jesus, look, if he's not good enough, if he's not going to cut the mustards, well, who can be saved? It's impossible, isn't it? If this guy, who is so good, who's ticked every box, can't make it, what hope is there for anyone? Now, strange as it might sound, this is not primarily a story about money. It it is about money, but there's much more going on as well. Because Jesus loves him, he uses the issue of money to illustrate something to this rich young ruler— Jesus wants to show him and teach him one key fundamental lesson, and it's this. God's approval, being saved, is not something that he can do. It's not something that he can do. That is the problem that this rich young ruler has got. Look back at his question and see if you can spot the problem with it, good as it sounds. What's the problem with his question in verse 17? What must I do? to be saved. Do you see the problem? What must I do? 
It's a really tragic question, impressive as it sounds, because he assumes that salvation, being right with God, being connected with God, is something that he can do. And Jesus wants to show him that it's not. It's nothing that he can do. God's approval, being reconnected with God, is only something that Jesus can do. Let me try to illustrate it um, a little bit like this. I, um, in, a, in a previous job, I, um, I worked for a church out in the Cotswolds. I don't know if you know the Cotswolds. It's a very rural, uh, beautiful part of the country, um, just kind of near, between sort of Oxford and Birmingham, if that, if that means anything to you. It's um, full of these tiny, picturesque villages with pubs on the green and a little stream running through them and, uh, and all that kind of thing. When I, was, when I was there, part of my role working for the church was to run a church youth group. And every Sunday evening, we'd kind of, um, it was only a handful of, of uh, teenagers, six or seven, we'd get together and, um, and we'd talk about big things of life and the Bible and Jesus. And, um, and I, uh, after a while, ended up running a series of, of confirmation uh, lessons for them. And one evening, we were looking at this very passage uh, in Mark chapter 10. And I said to the group that evening, uh, to those teenagers, imagine, just for a moment that you were going to die tonight and that you'd go up to heaven and stand before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say, I wonder, if, uh, if that were you? What, what would you say? It's, it's a really tough question <laughs> in its own way and a really hard question for a group of teenagers. And understandably, they kind of ummed and ahed a bit. And because I'm quite mean, I let them um and ah for a bit longer. And um, uh, after a little while, they began to say things like, well, because um, I'm doing really well at school. In fact, they, and they all were doing really well at school. I mean, these were bright kids who were going to be uh, the best of the best. Some of them said, well, I've, I've been baptised because they were kind of churchy. Um, and had been part of a church group for a while. Eventually, after uh, I'd let them um and ah for a little bit longer, uh, I put them out of their misery, and I said to them, any answer that begins because I is no good. Any answer that begins because I is no good. It won't do. Whether it's because I've been baptised, whether it's because I gave a million pounds to the church, whether it's because I passed all of my exams and found a really good job, the only answer that will be any good is this. Because Jesus. Because Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life and yet died and rose in my place. Because he is my righteousness, because he is my hope and my joy, because he is my life, because Jesus has done it all for me. As he says in verse 27, uh, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Jesus is better than you think he is. He's much more surprising. He is much deeper, much richer, much more full of grace. Let me share with you briefly um, how I found that uh, to be the case when I uh, first became a Christian. I, I grew up um, as part of quite a, quite a churchy family. Uh, I was taken to church every Sunday. We lived um, out on the Welsh borders, so um, a tiny town called Hay-on-Wye, which is about a town of 1,500 people, 
and, um, and we were part of the church and involved in various ways. And although I was never an outstanding kind of teenager, I did all right, I did okay at school, um, I was never outstanding, but, but I like to think of myself as kind of pretty hard-working and pretty responsible. I, I didn't really get into that much trouble, and um, when I did get into trouble, I was pretty good at covering it up. Apart from uh, in one way, as a, as a teenager, I think I can safely say that without doubt, I was the angriest person that I knew. I could spend uh, hours, days, weeks probably, if you ask my family, uh, in a rage, really kind of seething anger. And it always happened for the same reason. It always happened, I always got really, really angry when I thought that I was receiving less than I deserved. It could be anything, it could be to do with anything, it could have been food, it could have been sport, it could have been a grade or a mark that I got at school. If I thought that I wasn't getting a fair deal out of life, then I would fly into a rage and make life misery for everyone within hitting or insulting distance. You see, in one really big way, I had a very faulty view of the world and a faulty view of God. I saw God a bit like this. I saw him in the same way as the rich young ruler. I thought that if I did all of the right things, if I went to church every week, if I worked really hard, if I did all the things that I thought God wanted me to do, then he would give me all the things that I thought I deserved. I saw God as being a bit like a slot machine. I thought you put the right stuff in, you put your money in, and you kind of pull the lever, and out comes what you deserve and what you want. And yet I could never put quite as much in as I thought I needed to do. So even a, a little thing, even a minor flaw, became a disaster because it showed me that I wasn't good enough to deserve God's approval. Yet as we've seen, Jesus completely explodes that view of who God is. That's not the God that Jesus shows us. God is no one's debtor. In his grace, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us much more. He gives us so much more when we come to him and find him. Jesus is much better than you think he is. What what does all of this mean, then, for the way that we go about kind of telling others about Jesus, sharing our faith with other people? I think that uh, if there was one thing that I would say I've discovered uh, over the years, it's this. Uh, Telling other people about Jesus, sharing our faith with others, talking to other people, only really happens when we discover that Jesus is much better than we think he is. We're only willing to share Jesus with others when we really think that he is shareable, if I can put it like that. If we're really convinced that Jesus really is our everything. Let me, let me try to unpack that a, a little bit, and um, let's, um, let's, let's, do, let's do a brief thought experiment this morning. If, if I say to you the word um, evangelist or evangelism, don't, you don't need to shout out, but what comes to mind? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the word evangelist? If you're anything like me, when you hear that word, it, it's largely fairly negative things that come to mind. So I start thinking about maybe 
a kind of American salesman TV kind of type. So perhaps someone who's got a massive gold watch and a really kind of fake tan and um, is just really kind of knows all the answers um, to everything. Perhaps someone who's kind of quite uh, smarmy, not necessarily the person that you'd really want to go to the pub with. And, and if that's our view of evangelism or telling other people about Jesus, quite rightly, we don't want to be like that, <laughs> largely. That's not the sort of person that we want to be. Now kind of think of someone else. Think of the person, uh, and there are probably more than, one, more than one, but just think of the person who is most influential in you becoming a Christian. I don't know who it might be for you, but think of that person. Now think of what that person was like. Think of um, their influence in your life. Think about why it was that, you, that they had something that you wanted. What was it about them that kind of drew you in to being a Christian? My guess is that that person wasn't able to answer every question that you had. My guess is that that person wasn't particularly unique or special, even though we love them and are thankful for them. My guess is that they were fairly ordinary, fairly kind of everyday type of people. And the thing is, when it comes to telling other people about Jesus, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of person that we want to be like. That's the kind of person that we uh, want to aspire to be like. Because telling other people about Jesus isn't simply about answering questions. I think that's one of the problems that we have. We we tend to think, if I'm going to be honest and open and upfront with my friends and my colleagues and, and mention Jesus to them, there might be all sorts of difficult questions that they start asking. So they might start asking about how a good God could allow suffering or evil in his world. They might start asking me about science and and how kind of God and science kind of come together. And then if they start asking me about those things, we think, how am I going to answer? What am I going to say? I'm not entirely sure that I know that I've got a really, really good answer. But the thing is, telling other people about Jesus isn't simply a matter of answering questions. It's not about having the right words to say and having a really brilliant knockdown argument to every hard question that people ask you. Sharing Jesus with our friends is simply about thinking that Jesus is shareable and that he is wonderful. And there is something about him that makes sense of life, that makes sense of who you are, of how the world is and what the world is like. So if we're going to share Jesus with our friends, if we're going to tell other people, the first thing we have to think is this. Jesus is worth sharing. He is much better than I think he is. There's something really wonderful about him. And even if I can't can't answer every question, I'm still going to say to my friends, I don't know the answer, but I can trust Jesus with it. Because he's great and wonderful, and he is much better than you or I think he might be. Let me just try to illustrate that um, really briefly with one final uh, little story. The the last couple of weeks, I don't know how you found the last couple of weeks, it's been fairly tumultuous on the kind of national uh, news front. We've had um, the election, obviously, just a few weeks ago, and then 
the awful events of Grenfell Tower and uh, London Bridge just a couple of weeks um, before that. It's been really kind of up and down. And it might have left you feeling quite shaky, um, quite wobbly uh, this morning. It certainly has uh, to me. One of the, um, one of the real joys, however, of the election season is um, seeing again some of the great kind of rituals of our national life. I don't know if you happen to see it, but um, when, after, the, after the election, when all the MPs came back to Westminster and uh, sat in the House of Commons again, they have this ceremony where the Speaker of the House, the guy who kind of sits in the chair and tells them all to be quiet so that someone can speak, the, um, he has to be dragged to his chair. Um, you can kind of go onto the BBC website, I think, and, and see them do this. So um, the, the MPs who kind of nominate him, who say that this is the guy that we want, they have to go to where he's sitting and literally drag him up to his chair so he can sit there and uh, be the speaker. It's really funny to kind of watch it, and it's, you know, they, don't, they don't hurt him. It's not, it's not that bad. He kind of gets up and walks with them. But, th- but th- that's, the kind of, that's the kind of way um, that it, it operates. And do you know what? I was kind of watching that, and I, and I happened to see that clip, um, and I was thinking about it kind of this morning, and I just thought, do you know what, in, in a way, that's just a really kind of small picture of what it's like to tell our friends about Jesus. It's to kind of say to them, look, just come and see. Jesus is better than you think he is. Just come and see. Come to church with me on Sunday morning. I might not be able to give you all the answers to your tough questions, but come and see. Because Jesus is much better. He's much richer. He's much more surprising. He's much more full of grace than you think he is. Come and see. And we'll find that willingness to do that when we truly realize that Jesus is better than we think he is. I'm going to pray to close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus this morning. Thank you for his amazing grace and love. Thank you that even though we aren't worthy to be called your friends, thank you that Jesus makes us worthy in his grace and his kindness. Please help us to know him this morning for who he really is. And as we do that, to find the love that says to our friends and neighbours and colleagues and families, come and see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.